0: There's a game I like to play from time to time. Usually when I'm sitting around a campfire with people or uh, when I was a youth pastor, we used to do it for our youth ministry. <clears throat> we, the, game, the game, I, I called it uh, One Day to Live. And it was just a, it was just a, a, a question that would prompt people's response. Uh, if you had, you knew you had one day to live, let's say you're completely healthy and you knew you had one day to live what would you do? What would you do with that with that day? You know, people's responses to that uh, are, are always interesting. There's lots of people who always say, "Well, I, I would have traveled. Uh, I would go to you know wherever Bora Bora, which I've always thought was funny because like the whole day would take to get to Bora Bora." But anyway, I, I would go to do my favorite activity. I would go sailing, or uh, if you like cycling, I'd go cycling. I'd, I'd spend a lot of people. I would spend as much time as I could with my family I actually remember doing this game with uh, a, a group at one point and one of the guys in the room in the uh, in the room was a was a farmer and he he said um, I would I would go out and farming I would go I would go out and like cut the fields with, uh, of wheat and I was like man you need to get out a little bit <laughs> right uh, you probably shouldn't go to work on your last day of living but you know, maybe you love your work so much that, that you do that. I know I do. Anyway, um, that idea, though, that you've got one day to live, it, like, it, it intensifies everything. It, it, makes, it makes everything you do, everything you say, more important. You don't waste time on words that don't mean anything. Uh, you, don't, you don't go to do things that you don't care about. It intensifies things, so there, there's, this, there's stories uh, about what happened on uh, 9-11. Um, you, some of you remember what uh, you, you remember watching the Twin Towers in New York coming down in 2001. Um, some of you, of course, are too young for that, but it was a devastating day. Uh, but as, as news came out about what, what had happened and what was going on, there was one of the planes that, um, that was able to get cell phone coverage uh, just in New York prior to running into the buildings. They knew they were headed for their own death and they were calling their loved ones. What would you say? Like what, what would be the final words that you give to someone? You're not gonna see them again? You you know that it's over? What would you say? This uh, passage that I want to share with you in the next few minutes is actually one of those passages. It, it's a passage uh, of final words from the Apostle Paul to his friends in the city of Ephesus. In fact, the elders at the church in Ephesus where he had, he had planted a church. They were his dear friends. He'd been there for quite a while and he was sailing along past uh, this particular location, Ephesus. He gets off the boat. He calls all the elders to him and he gives them a message. And like those final words from from the folks on the plane on 9-11, these are Paul's important words. These are Paul's heartfelt, most important things that you need to remember. Look, I've got two sermons left uh, with the church, and I'm calling the two sermon mini-series Parting Shots. And mostly, it's not not me just throwing things at the church saying, this is what I think, this is what I think, this is what I think. I just wanna take a couple passages of scripture that have to deal with people, uh, Paul in this occasion and next week Jesus, and what they said in their last words, because in our last words we say the most important stuff. So what did Paul say in Acts 20, verses 17 to 38? What were his final words to these folks? And more importantly, what do we learn from those final words uh, to his friends. What kind of things are we gonna learn are really important for us to remember, especially as I go, these are things that are particularly important to me as well. What we're gonna learn here is that we ought to love the heralds, we ought to fear the wolves, and we ought to trust our God. Love the heralds, fear the wolves, trust our God. Um, First, love the heralds. Here's verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. From Miletus, which is a port city, Paul sent to Ephesus for the for, for the elders of the church. He's got a picture. He's gotten off the boat and he's and he's there at the dock, and he sends word to the to the to the Ephesian church. Hey, I want the elders, the leaders, come down and and. I can't go up to them because we're in a hurry. It's a little stopover that we've got, but I'm going to take advantage. It's like, it's like if you went to the airport and you called your dearest friends and you knew that you weren't going to see them anymore. He sent to, Eph, uh, to Ephesus for the elders of the church, and when they arrived, he said to them, Look, you, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. And in the midst of severe testing by the plots of Jewish opponents. You remember all the things that have gone on up to this point. The way I lived, the way that I ministered, the difficulties I faced in the city of Ephesus. Verse 20, you you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house Uh, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So so it doesn't matter whether or not I was uh, speaking to a Jewish person with a faith background in God or a Greek person who is far from God. I told the same message. I told the same message both both publicly, right, in my big sermons where all the people would come. And I said the same thing that I said there in the house to house. When I came to your door and I had dinner with you, the message was the same no matter the person, no matter the context. It was the message was the same. Got to repent and have faith in in the Lord Jesus. And now, verse 22, I compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. In fact, he did probably know he had some people prophesying to him that, hey man, if you go to Jerusalem, your hands are going to be bound. Right. Some people were saying, don't go to Jerusalem because they're going to arrest you. The prophets have spoken. But he's like, man, I, I don't know. Pro- I'm going to get arrested probably, but I don't know what's going to happen to me, meaning I might die. I don't know what's going to happen to me there. Verse 23, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are, are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's great laser focused on the work the Lord has given him. And even if it costs him everything, even if it means that he gets kicked in the stomach repeatedly, even if it means his death, I will go and I will complete the task the Lord has given me. Verse 25 now. I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, so here are his final words. I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, or in other versions, the whole counsel of God. There are a couple things I really want you to note from what I just read. One of them is that Paul is consistently bold. You notice that, right? It didn't matter who I spoke to, it didn't matter what their background was, it didn't matter whether what the context was the place I was speaking in. I was always bold. I was always God's emissary. I was always his herald. Always willing to speak the truth to whomever was was there. I didn't I didn't hold back from declaring anything. You. you know what this is a challenge this is a challenge for all of us particularly for pastors there are pastors who make the error on the one side of being publicly bold and privately meek quiet you know pull back That publicly these things ought not be then privately hey I don't know you know it's not what you're doing is not a big deal. that sends a mixed message And the other way is true as well. Privately, hey, look, let's, you know, let's not make any of these rash decisions about whether this is a sin or not a sin. So they pull back from declaring the whole counsel of God or they pull back from the truth of scripture or even the tenor that the scriptures are communicated in. But then in private, they're like that. Neither of those are going to do. The Apostle Paul said, look, didn't matter where it was, I was bold. No matter what it, where it was, I was consistently bold. And second, he views himself, especially at the end there, you saw that, I know that none among you whom I've gone preaching the kingdom will ever see me again, therefore I declare today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. For I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. The word proclaim, to, to preach, to herald. He views himself as a herald. In fact, that language of I'm the innocent of the blood of any of you, is from Ezekiel 33, which is this interesting passage where um, God says, look, if any of you are on the watchtower, right, so a city with the walls and it's got a tower on the corner. If any of you are on the watchtower and your job is to look out into the horizon and to sound the alarm when the enemy is coming, if any of you are standing there and you sound a clear and distinct alarm when you see the enemy coming, but the people in the city don't pay attention to you, then." their blood, the language is in Ezekiel 33, their blood is not on your hands. You're innocent of the blood of them. If, however, you see the enemy in the, in the distance and they are coming and you don't sound a clear alarm, then the blood of the people is on you. O herald, O watchman. And Paul is drawing this Image. He's saying, look, I, I've always viewed myself as the guy on the corner of the tower looking off into the distance and saying to you, you, you Ephesians, I've, I've always said, look, I am not guilty of the blood of any of you because I always told you what was coming. I always warned you. I'll still say in a minute with tears. I've warned you. Look, I feel... What he's saying here, because if my heart has a single cry about my ministry, it is that. Lord, I just want to tell the truth. Like I, I want to tell the truth as clear as I possibly can, as clear as I can see it. When I study your word, I want to declare to people what it says. I, I don't want to shrink back from it. I want to sound a clear call. So that at the end of my time at any church or in any ministry, and especially at the end of my life, I can look back and I can say that the the none of your blood is on my head. If you choose not to listen, that's that's you. But I discharged my ministry the way I wanted to, and that's really honestly that, that I've tried to do this at Northview. Uh, I hope that you've seen it. I hope that you've experienced it. I, I remember. Um, my first sermon, in fact, at Northview, uh, I was it was actually on the long weekend or the weekend after Christmas. You know, they always put in the, the, the young, we always put the young guys in at that weekend, the guys who were just trying to learn. I'd come from New Zealand. I was the young adults pastor. Hey, Jeff, you want to preach a sermon the week after Christmas? Yeah, sure. So I preached on Revelation chapter 3, which is a passage that talks about, man, you don't want to be hot or cold or, or God, Jesus says, I'll spit you out of my mouth, which is, I mean, really provocative text. And so I remember uh, saying that Jesus says this to a church that's in a city that is relatively wealthy and sees themselves as self, uh, they're they're self-sufficient, they don't need the help of anyone else. And I kept kept saying, do you know any any churches like that? Where the people have some money and they're not, they're self-sufficient and they often don't want to have anybody's help, but They're kind of half-hearted. Do you know anybody like that? And I remember there's a guy at the back of the the church and during one of the services who started laughing like really out loud. (laughs) Yeah, and he started looking around at all the people in the church like, yeah, us. I'm not sure he got the idea that it was a rhetorical question. (laughs) But I remember thinking to myself, oh, is that provocative? Like somebody to apply the scriptures that straight to us? Is that provocative? And I learned at the time that actually, yeah, it, it was provocative. I remember they were looking for a lead pastor at the time and one of the, the guys on the lead pastor search team came to me afterwards and said, well, that was, a, that was a good message, Jeff, very prophetic, but you know, the church can't handle that kind of preaching very often. And I'm glad to say that he was wrong that North, you can handle it, and you have handled it, and many of you responded so positively to me when I've tried to tell you the truth, almost cheering that it's happening, that somebody is saying that this is what the Word of God says, because that's really all we want, isn't it? I mean, all of us, I don't care if you're Christian or not a Christian, don't you you just in this day and age, don't you want somebody to try to tell you the truth and not try to shade it all the time, to not try to you know, give you the PR version of everything? There is a guy who I was able to meet just um, actually a week or two ago. Um, My son is, by God's grace and kind providence, he's involved in in the Major League Baseball draft. And so he might be drafted. He's talking to some of these scouts from uh, different Major League teams. And this one guy, uh, we've talked to lots of different scouts. You know, they're always trying to tell you how great the kid is and how... um, you know, hey, we'd be privileged to draft. And, you know, it's always positive, positive, positive about a kid. But this particular guy, I, I just got a sense from him that he was just a genuine, honest guy. And so I, in the middle of the conversation, I said, can I just, can you take your scout hat off for a minute? Because, dude, I've been in this conversation for long enough. I just need somebody to tell me the truth. Like, what should we expect? What is it actually like? What is it? And this guy, to his credit, smiled and he said, I'd love to. And all of a sudden, he became a guy who was who was a herald. He was declaring to me what he saw off the corner of that tower about the future of my son and uh, where he belonged in this. And what was I? What is your advice? I said to like for a kid with these different options, what do you do? And he was honest with me. And that's all I wanted. I actually wanted to get up and hug him, although you know it would have been a little bit awkward, COVID and all that, and the fact that I don't really love hugging all that much. But. I do now, after COVID, dude, I'll hug everything. Um, We just want to be told the truth, right? If we have a lifeguard at the beach and there's a shark out there, we are like, tell us about the shark. You can scream it, dude. I don't care about the process you use. I want you to declare it as clearly as you can. Who wants a lifeguard who sees the shark and is like, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, right? They look like they're having a good time swimming out there, right? I mean, some of them are on, on surfboards and they look like a porpoise, but you know, I don't want to frighten them or anything. Of course you want them to frighten you. Of course you want the warning. We just want, we just want the truth. And I, I my goal has been to tell you the truth, regardless of who you are or where you're from, to consistently do so. I don't know if I've always done it as faithfully as I could. But I want, along with Paul, to say that the blood of Your blood is not on on my head if you choose to ignore what the Word of God says. So love the heralds. I pray for the church that that's the next, the next person who comes in and the next and the next and the next. That the heralds, that the preachers will be honored for their faithfulness and honesty with you. Second, uh, fear the wolves. So on the heels of Paul saying, hey, I've declared clearly, his next comment is, well, there are others who've declared clearly, but what they're declaring is leading you astray. Note what he says in verse 28. He says, keep watch over yourselves. He's talking to elders here, right? Elders of the church in Ephesus. He said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now we normally hear that and we're like, I get it when you say keep watch over all the flock. Isn't that the job of a pastor? To keep watch over the shepherd, keep watch over the flock? Shepherds don't, aren't usually told, hey, keep watch over yourself. And yet that's, that's what's added here. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. They matter, in other words, to Jesus. He bought them with his blood. So this is no minor shepherding task. I know says Paul, that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and and will not spare the flock. Really, where are they coming from? And even that picture that Paul said, you're on the watchtower looking off into the distance. You've got to be looking for where they're coming from outside, right? They're coming to your city, your church, and they're coming from outside. And yet he adds this interesting phrase at verse 30, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Don't just point to the people out there. Focus on the people inside too because from your own number, from your own elder team, savage wolves will arise. Some of the people that you think are actually genuine leaders, are wolves in sheep's clothing. And if you're not careful, you don't watch yourselves, you might be one. And if you don't uh, watch out for others, you won't be shepherding the flock properly. Remember that for three years, he said, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with, with tears. You know, if you go back into Acts 19, one of the things that you find out is that um, when Paul first came to Ephesus, they, uh, th- this weird thing happened. He came and he started preaching the gospel. And of course, a bunch of people in the city of Ephesus, which was known for its idol worship, especially to this idol, this goddess named Artemis. They had a big temple there for her. A bunch of those people came to faith in Christ and they, they got rid of their idols, that's what you do. When you come to faith in Christ, you realize that those idols are meaningless. And Paul, Paul was preaching this to people. Those idols are dead and meaningless. God is not in, made by human hands, right? So one of the guys, Demetrius, who was a silversmith, in other words, he made, he made the idols. It was his business to sell them. Is getting like, wait a minute, this is hitting me in the pocketbook. Like you're ruining my business, Paul. And so he goes out into the community and he starts yelling, gathering people together for a riot basically saying, you know this Paul, this guy, he's ruining our business, he's causing us all sorts of trouble, and he's defaming great Artemis. And so then when he said that, everyone started chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They grabbed Paul's, some of Paul's friends, dragged them into the amphitheater, into this big city city meeting place, and they, they just chanted for hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I imagine that if I were uh, an elder in Ephesus, knowing that history, knowing that that's how this church got started by that Paul and the way that the community at large started to respond to the church, I would think that if there was a danger to come upon the church, it's gonna come from the Demetriuses of the world. It's gonna come from the people outside the church. And yet Paul's comment here is no, 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 no. No, it's gonna come from among you guys. Listen, the greatest danger in the church then and the church today is not from the outside, but from the inside. There are dangers outside. The watchman has to watch for what's coming, but it's not those outside who will rip the church apart so much as it's those inside. Among your own selves, he said, from among your own selves, they, they will come. So I want to take just a minute. You guys have, have heard me say this long and hard. Uh, I, if there is one thing that I'm mostly worried about when it comes to the leaving behind people, it's that they're going to turn away from, from the, the good deposit, from the faith that I've tried to proclaim clearly. And the way they're gonna turn away from that is from people drawing away from the from the inside. So I, I wanted to just take a minute and talk a little bit about false teaching. As you know, I've talked about it several times. It is like the biggest thing that will probably draw you away, false teaching. So what what are some common characteristics of false teaching? And I've got like four of them that I just wanna point out. One of them is false teaching often appeals to the Bible. Uh, you probably know this if you've, if you've thought about uh, the way Satan came to Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness. So in Luke 4, verse 9, here's what it, it says. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written. <laughs> you going to quote the Bible now. Satan's quoting, quoting the Bible. He knew it by heart. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's from Psalm 91. Satan, the devil, quotes Psalm 91 to Jesus as his support for him telling Jesus, hey, just throw yourself off the temple. Most false teachers quote scripture. they, They are like Satan, right? They're angels of light. And that light is, hey, I know the Bible. So let me quote some of it to you. See, I'm I'm telling you, of course the problem is that when they quote it, they don't do it uh, with any consideration of the context in which those words are, or with the intent of the author in that particular place. They just sort of quote it like it's a magic book. And then if I quote this quote, it doesn't matter about any context or anything, these are magic incantation words, and so you should believe me because of this, Verse and so many people are so biblically illiterate and unable to read the Bible in context that we're like, oh, okay. I mean, this guy's got a following of thousands of people and because he does, we might as well listen to him. I was listening to one pastor actually a little while ago. He quoted Psalm 23. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here was his point. He said, listen, if you have any want, the Lord's not your shepherd. Wait a minute, what? Yeah, he was a prosperity teacher, and he was trying to say, look, this passage basically teaches that if you have want, you don't have the Lord as your shepherd. So you really need to embrace the Lord as your shepherd. What well, that meant, I, I don't know, what, come to faith in Christ or whatever? So, but hey, basically, everybody who's a Christian will have uh, no want, is what he thinks that Psalm 23 is about. Oh, my word. Uh, no, but I can imagine so many people believing it. It's ridiculous, but it appeals to the Bible. They just just twist it. So false teaching often appeals to the Bible. Second, it's taught by nice people who may even be our our friends. My son, when he was really little, uh, we were living in New Zealand at some people's house who were de- lovely, kind people. Uh, the, the, the husband and the wife, Hudson and Colleen, or Kagi Col- uh, and Baba, as my son called them, they were kind of, uh, they were kind of uh, replacement grandparents because we were so far away. Anyway, uh, they don't celebrate Halloween there, but some kids from down the street Realized that we were some Americans were staying up the street with uh, Hudson Colleen And so they came up the street with their masks on right because they're like oh finally You can go to a lot of houses in New Zealand and not get anything for Halloween people are like get out of here Get lost it was always funny when kids would come to, to your house because they knew we were Americans and they'd, in their basket or in their little bag, you'd look in there and they're like, we like light, light bulbs and toothpaste and stuff. And some people were just like, I don't know, what do I give them? And they just reached around the corner and threw in whatever. Like, here's some caulking glue or whatever. Well, these kids came to the front, of the front door of the house, rang the doorbell. Hudson had Ethan in his arms. Ethan, I don't know, he, really young, right? One-year-old, two-year-old. And he, and he was walking to the door. And he opened the door and these two kids with these scary masks were there. They were dressed up as monsters. And my son Ethan looked at them and as soon as he saw them, he said, ah! <laughs> he just freaked out. He started to climb over Hudson's back, tried, jumped toward me, I grabbed him. He's climbing over my back, trying to jump down. And I mean, I'm running him back up into the house. Hey, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, we know. The, we know what monsters look like. We know what we're supposed to do when monsters come. Many of us think that that's what happens when you when a false teacher comes, right? He's gonna be wearing that scream mask, right? He's gonna have, a, or a hockey mask, and he's gonna be cutting you know, people's faces. What, like, that's what we think. The devil is this guy with a little pitchfork and got the little pointy bits, and he's dressed in red. When you see him, you'll know. It, really? Actually, the, the, the scriptures repeatedly say, no, the savage wolves look like the sheep. Jesus said that, in fact, himself. They have big smiles, false teachers. They have they, they, nice hair, kind words. Often they're friends. Often they're people whose houses we've been to for dinner. One of the early uh, parts of church history it was a fight between a guy named Pelagius and Augustine. Augustine was preaching salvation by grace, and Pelagius was basically saying, no, 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 you know, you basically kind of work for it. (laughs) Uh, Augustine, of course, won that fight in the history of the church, but what was said about Pelagius is that he was the nicest-looking, kindest, warm-hearted guy, and Augustine was this irascible, sometimes uh, harshly-mouthed fighter, I don't know if that's totally true, but church historians have said that before. Like if you were going to go and just base your understanding what's true based upon the individuals themselves, everybody would have chosen Pelagius. And yet he was, in fact, one of the great heretics in the history of the Christian church. This very nice guy, Pelagius. Didn't have any like little horns or a, 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 red, a, a red pitchfork. And yet if you're Pelagian, you're going to hell. This comes near and dear or hard to me because uh, even in the last several weeks among our own denomination, we've been having lots of conversations. There's a church or two churches in our denomination who have been led by people who have been friends of many in the denomination. And they have decided that their church is going to be gay-affirming. They're going to embrace LGBTQ+, plus, not, not embrace the people, but em, embrace their actions. Like we, I embrace LGBTQ+, plus people. They are God, made in God's image, right? But we want to preach to them what we preach to everybody, the re- repentance and faith, right? But this church decided, no, they don't need to repent because the way that they're living is not against God's law. So they've decided to do this. But in the Zoom calls and all the conversations that I've had with lots of, lots of different denominational leaders and others, the, the, the phrase keeps coming up. Well, we want to handle this. It's difficult because he's family. Like, we, we know him. He's been our friend for all these years. And what do we do if he's just, he's our friend? We, I know his wife. We get together, are, are we holidayed together? And I just, I want to say, that yes, yes, I, I get it. But you do know that Paul said from your own number, right? From your own number. They will rise and drag people away. Fear them, fear the wolves. False teaching appeals to the Bible. It's taught by nice people who may even be our friends. Their arguments sound good. Right? Colossians 2, verse 4, I tell you this, says Paul, that so that no one de- might deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Yeah, we get deceived by fine-sounding arguments. We're not stupid people. We can connect the dots. So if, if somebody makes an argument that seems to connect dots that we can see, that we're like, oh, that, that, must, that must be true. Most people aren't drawn away by poor-sounding arguments. False teaching's way better if it's clever. One of my... Uh, least favorite little false readings of the Bible is uh, in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, it says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for years, people read that properly, which is uh, you already love yourself. So love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. The love for yourself was assumed because it, it should be assumed. Even those of us who don't like ourselves, we, we have bad comments about ourselves. I do that often in my own my own heart and life yeah you're worthless you're terrible these sorts of things there is a there is a kind of pride that i have in in my what i look like i take care of myself i feed myself i take you know i'm very focused on myself in fact that's why i'm so focused on how i'm coming off to people it's because i i even in, in the despising of myself, there is a kind of love I have for myself I'm, uh, in the sense that I'm focused and I'm committed my time to myself. That's what is being said here. But in the self-esteem movement, now we basically got the Bible, people read that text and they say, see, the Bible teaches you to love yourself. Actually, the Bible teaches you to deny yourself. That's to follow Jesus, you gotta deny yourself. You, should you love yourself? Sure, in the way that you're made in God's image, you're also a sinner saved by grace. So. You're broken. Love your neighbor as yourself doesn't teach you, hey, love yourself. It teaches you to love your neighbor because you do love yourself. I hear that from all sorts of different people. And in the end, it leads people in a kind of uh, following of Jesus that is more embracing of themselves and focusing on themselves and making, oh, it's my destiny that God cares about and my opinions and my, 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 me, me, me. No, it's deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Saddle though, right? And it argue, the argument sounds good. It's quoted from the Bible. Look, finally, and this is a really big one in our days uh, false teaching um, is often driven by greed. Uh, if you go a little bit further in Acts, uh, in fact, the, the next little section, Acts 20, verse 33, uh, Paul says, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. But you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to to receive. Isn't that weird? He brings up money here. Like in the midst of false teaching, yeah, he starts talking about false teachers. Beware of the wolves; They're going to come from your own number. Also remember that I didn't ask you for any money. Why is he bringing that up? Uh, Because false teachers want your money. Like that's one of the driving things behind their false teaching. Second Peter chapter two, verse one. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the, the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. In their greed, they're going to exploit you with fabricated stories. That's a prophecy by Peter. Guess what? It's come true. Give money to my process, give money to my ministry, give money to these things. Let me cobble together this theology that you can believe in and it's not, of course, gonna lead you away from Christ and it's gonna get you focused on me and my money and your prosperity and yet, Don't buy it. Paul's like, I didn't do any of that. I didn't, do any, I didn't want your money. It's gonna cloud the issues. There was an old, da- uh, Creflo Dollar's the name of one of these guys who is, without a doubt, a false teacher who desperately wants your money. That's his name. I, I, can't, I don't even know if that's his name. But Creflo Dollar, it's a very interesting uh, uh, approach. He is on TV and all sorts of things. But here's a story from the Daily Beast, which is uh, an online publication. Here's what they said a number of years ago. God wants Pastor Creflo Dollar to have a $65 million private jet. According to a paid spokesman for God, Pastor Cref- Creflo Dollar. I mean, it's a cynical article. Dollar's website recently unveiled Project G-650, an airplane project that he claims has something to do with understanding grace and empowering change. You may be wondering, what could this mysterious holy airplane project be? Probably something related to charity, you must think, like air dropping food into famine-ravaged countries or flying sick children to doctors or lifting two of every animals out of a flood. Not quite. Dollar was once the proud owner of a pretty baller private jet, but now it's old and naturally he wants a new one. And so he wants his followers to pay $65 million for the new one, just as Jesus attended. On his website, Dollar made this case, quote, the ministry's current airplane was built in 1984, purchased by the ministry in 1999 and has since logged 4 million miles. Recently on an overseas trip to a global conference, one of the engines failed. By the grace of God, the expert pilot who has flown with Creflo for almost 20 years landed the plane safely without injury or harm to any passengers. Dollar claims the private jet allows him to safely and swiftly share the good news of the gospel worldwide in a way that commercial aircrafts no doubt just couldn't. The mission of Project G-650 is to acquire a Gulfstream G-650 airplane so that pastors Creflo and Taffy, his wife, and World Changers Church International can continue to blanket the globe with the gospel of grace. Dollar's website said, We are believing for 200,000 people to give contributions of 300 U.S. dollars or more to turn this dream into a reality and allow us to retire the aircraft that served us well for many years. Besides the aging private jet, Dollar and his wife also have two Rolls Royces and multiple multi-million dollar homes. They sold one in New York City in 2012 for $3.75 million. Who knew sacrificing for God was such a profitable calling? In their greed, they will exploit you. Why do we fall for these people? I mean, is it the smiling face or the double-breasted coat or the style of their rhetoric? How they walk around confidently, declare to you that they're the ones who hear from God. Surely we know our Bibles better than this, though, right? The greatest threats to the Christian faith come not from outside the church, but from inside. My fear for Northview, for any church anywhere, is that they won't realize that. And they won't be on their guard. Here's the last one. Uh, Trust your God. Verse 32 to 38. uh, read a little bit of this before, but note the first line. Uh, Now I commit to you, or sorry, commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Uh, I've not coveted Anyone silver or gold or clothing, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed that you, you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord, Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And they all wept as they embraced and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that they would never see him, his face again. They they then accompanied him to the ship. Have you ever thought about the end of the Apostle Paul's life? I mean, we, we, he's a hero to us because of all the things that he did. I mean, the Bible is filled with stories of the Apostle Paul, it's filled with uh, books and letters that are written by the Apostle Paul. I mean, he is a dude. But at the end of his life, if you really think about it, uh, as he was lying on his deathbed, he would have looked back at all that he had done. And what he would have had is a bunch of churches that were in varying stages of disarray. The Corinthian church was having massive infighting. The Philippian church had uh, Euodia and Syntyche who were creating trouble for each other and weren't getting along. And they needed to learn to, even though they were a very generous church, they needed to learn to to beware of, of the bitterness that could form within their own ranks. You had false teachers coming in from all sorts of sides uh, for Paul. You needed elders appointed in lots of different places. The pastoral epistles are pleadings with his protege, Timothy and Titus, to lead the churches with faithfulness and stand for the good deposit, the sound doctrine that they'd received. What he saw was a bunch of churches that were basically under the assault from the outside and from the inside. And there he was dying. And he must have wondered, how in the world is this going to turn out good? So much opposition. How is it going to turn out well? So what does he do? What do you do when you, you don't control the destiny of those around you, the people you've cared so deeply about and invested so much in, whether it your kids or your spouse or your family or whatever, how, what, what do you do? You notice the first line? Verse 32, now I commit you to God and the word of his grace. I commit you to God and the word of his grace. What do you do? You, you realize that this is God's work. I was just a servant, we, were all, we are all just servants doing our particular time, caring for our stewardships the best we possibly can, whether it's over children or churches or whatever. We don't determine the future, we are just faithful in the, in the moment. There's a woman who asked me years ago, in tears after a service, she came to me and she said, I, how in the world, given all of the things that we've been talking about, false teaching and and uh, the dangers especially for young adults who are the rising uh, number of what we call the nuns. They've given away the faith completely. They go to universities which are super, basically secular churches that are, that are uh, leading them straight away from Jesus. Even the Christian colleges are so decimated by false teaching that I, she was so scared. I don't know where to turn, she said, what do I do? And the answer is you, you commit them to God in the word of his grace. Like you you actually hand them over to the Lord. They are His anyway. Look, I've reflected about about leaving you for a while now. And I've gotten emails from people, uh, different emails that have said, can you please not leave? The church is coming out of a pandemic. There are all sorts of issues still to be sorted out. And what are we going to do in this situation and that situation? And you have a you have a, a strong leadership position. Don't waste it by giving it all away and going somewhere else. I, I mean, I've gotten a lot of those. And I feel those. I genuinely do feel those because in my heart of hearts, I desperately want to see the church Everywhere, but particularly north, you flourish, remain faithful till we all die happy in Jesus. And yet I don't know if that's going to happen. So what do you do? What do you do when people are infighting, right? They disagree about issues, about whatever it is. You know, last weeks or two, we've been having a conversation in our church about vaccine clinics and whether the vaccine clinic should have been done or not should have been done or whether or not vaccines should be taken or not. Guys, you do realize that it's these sorts of uh, disputable matters that can be raised up into levels of doctrine and we can hate each other because of it. That rips churches apart. It's a form of falseness. It's an, an, it's, it's an activity of the enemy. What do we do? What do I do? And my answer uh, to that is, of course, the same as Paul's. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is the Lord's work. This is the Lord's work, Northview. Your faith is the Lord's work. I planted another water. God gives the growth, right? I'm confident of this, says Paul in Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's my prayer for you. I pray it's your prayer for those in your, in your life who uh, you find it difficult to let go into the hands of God. But he loves, you more, he loves them more than you do. He cares more than you do. So they're safe in his hands. God bless you. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for uh, this passage. Thank you for the opportunity that I have to share these last parting shots with my dear brothers and sisters. I pray, Father, that there would be a a peace and joy that comes upon all of us as we think about where we're headed and how you're going to get us there. Despite the minefield that it looks like we're about to walk across, Father, we pray that you would keep us safe and help us to navigate through it, and that you would receive all the glory, Lord. Our salvation is from you, and it is through you, and it is to you. Our churches are from you, and they are through you, and they are to you. So to you be glory, we pray in Jesus' name.